Open your Bibles, except you don't need to. I have the verses of Isaiah 53 on the slides in front of you, and I trust that we can make our way through these slides rather quickly. We're going to cover 15 verses, phrase by phrase, of Isaiah 52, and the last three verses in Isaiah 53. The Bible tells us that preaching is reading in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and giving the sense and causing the hearers to understand the reading. And that is what we want to do in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is about God's servant. He's not called a son here. He's called a servant. And he sacrificed himself to save sinners. Isaiah 53 then tells us that God promoted that servant over the universe with great glory and honor. You heard an emotional version of preaching Isaiah 53 last week done a number of years ago. You can listen to that again sometime. It's on our website. This version of Isaiah 53, to fulfill our exposition of the book, will be a little different. It'll be a little more technical, a little more focusing on the words rather than the emotion, feelings, and passion of Isaiah 53. The slides are to focus your attention on the individual words with less effort due to the circumstances of this sermon and you listening to it in your homes due to the pandemic of 2019 that is still in America in 2020. Each method to preach Isaiah 53, whether it's the emotional one done a few years ago that you heard last weekend or the one today has advantages and drawbacks. Make the most of this one. Forget the other one. Don't make a comparison. They're very different in style. The Bible tells us and Jesus taught us Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you thankful that he saved you? Do you love every word of God? Then you should delight in the next number of minutes as we take the words apart of these 15 verses in the middle of Isaiah. There are many slides with lots of words and no pictures. So remember the rule. You love the words of God. You answered to my question, and Jesus said, man shall live by every word of God. There's going to be a lot of repetition because you've heard Isaiah 53 before, including last Sunday, including reading it last Saturday, including reading it last night. So there will be repetition, but that's how we learn things well. And since Isaiah 53 is the favorite chapter of Isaiah of many, I want to make sure that we know it well. This will be short, relatively so, simple, and sweet. Details, more details, and more technical explanations are in the Isaiah 53 outline that will be on our website. Let's get started with Isaiah 52 and verse 13, because the last three verses of Isaiah 52 introduce Isaiah 53. Here we go. Isaiah 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. When we break this verse down into its parts, it looks like this. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. I don't want you to miss a single phrase. Or word. Let's look at the word behold. Behold means look at it. 
Think about this subject. It should get your attention. Look at this wonderful thing. This opens the first, the 15 verse passage that closes with another word, therefore. These two words, behold and therefore, opening and closing this 15 verse section are glorious words. They're my two favorite words because they imply so much. Jesus is the son of God that died for you and he rules the universe because of it. Behold, what follows is what he did to obtain God's greatest honors ever. My servant. Note Jehovah in the first person. God is speaking. My servant. This is Almighty God talking about his son. This servant was not Isaiah's servant. This was God's servant. God's servant was Messiah the Christ. Messiah being of Hebrew origin in the Old Testament, Christ being of Greek origin in the New Testament, they're equals. Messiah equals Christ. And Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. He was the Christ. He is our Lord and our Savior. Jesus would obey God as a perfect servant. And of course a son, but he's not called a son in this section of Scripture. My servant shall deal prudently. Prudence is the practical application of wisdom. And Jesus dealt very prudently in his life. Prudence equals the right action or words at the, done the right way at the right time. Being prudent is wonderful. Jesus was wonderful. Jesus is wonderful. Jesus was very prudent with his family because they didn't believe on him, yet he submitted to his parents, to his friends, disciples, hearers, and to his foes. Prudent at all times in how he addressed them and reacted to them. Jesus achieved the ultimate goal, favor with God and men, because he dealt prudently all the time. Jesus was perfect. Here, called dealing prudently. Jesus was a king. Therefore, he was a perfect king because he was a prudent king. He shall be exalted and extolled. God's servant, whom we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, would be exalted and extolled sometime in the future. Exalted means to be honored very greatly with rank, with power, with wealth. All of that is true of the Lord Jesus. Extolled is to raise a person with high praise, to praise him highly, to magnify him. Jesus obtained both of those. This happened to Jesus at his ascension and coronation in heaven. Revelation 5, which you may have read last evening in your preparation for today's preaching, describes the dramatic scene of these two verbs, exalted and extolled, and be very high. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He shall be very high. Isaiah 52 and verse 13. It should light you up that God's servant, God's obedient servant, God's son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, is right now very high. He was put far above all human and angelic thrones anywhere. He was made higher than the heavens, according to Hebrews 7, in his position and his rule. God gave him a name above every name for men to confess. This introduction to Isaiah 53 was because and for his death for our sins. My servant would deal prudently in dying for you. My servant shall be exalted and extolled. My servant shall be very high. And it's all predicated on the fact 
that he died for God's people. The next verse, Isaiah 52, verse 14. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. It breaks down this way. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. As many were astonished at thee. Jesus' family and Jesus' friends were shocked by his torture and trial. They were astonished at what was happening to Jesus of Nazareth. Peter, in advance of the crucifixion, tried to stop Jesus from even going to Jerusalem. Be it far from thee, Lord. Peter tried to stop our Lord. Women wept as he tried to carry, tried to carry his cross to Calvary. This was the Son of God they loved and had done so much good. They were shocked by his cruel punishment that is described in the verses that follow and in the clauses that follow in this verse. His visage was so marred more than any man. Visage equals face. Marred equals altered and changed. He was disfigured by his enemies. He had great grief, as we will read. The soldiers ripped off his beard. They pounded thorns into his head. They slapped his face while blindfolded. His visage was so marred more than any man. And his form more than the sons of men. Jesus' form, or his bodily appearance, was greatly altered. He was scourged, had his back ripped open by a Roman scourge, by rough Roman soldiers. He was exhausted after being up all night. He had grieved greatly in Gethsemane, so that the Holy Spirit would describe it, sweating as it were great drops of blood. He had nails driven into hands and feet. He was forced to try to carry his cross, his form was marred and altered more than the sons of men. This is what Jesus did when he bore our sins. And for this submission to God's plan for him, God exalted and extolled and made him very high. The next verse, the last verse of chapter 52. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Let's look at it this way. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. So shall he sprinkle many nations. You should love this clause here. Because we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.2 Jesus sprinkled his dying blood for the elect. And we are his elect in other nations from Israel. His elect are found in many nations of the Gentiles. He was able to do this. He was able to sprinkle many nations by the torture just described 
that marred his visage and altered his form. You are part of these sprinkled elect. If you believe and live for him, the kings shall shut their mouths at him. King Herod could find no fault in him. King Agrippa could not oppose Paul's testimony about him. Constantine had to outwardly convert in his religion and change it to Christianity to save his empire. King George II stood for the Hallelujah Chorus of Messiah. Many other kings during the last 2,000 years were impressed. For that which had not been told them shall they see. They had never considered a virgin birth until Jesus. They had never considered such miracles until they heard what Jesus did in his ministry. They had never considered such wisdom until Jesus. They had never considered resurrection until Jesus rose from the dead. They had never considered a universal monotheistic religion until Jesus Christ set up one that ruled the world, spread throughout the world, and influenced and changed the world. They had never considered a certain specific day of judgment for that which had not been told them shall they see. When the gospel came to kings, they heard things they had never heard before. The mystery of godliness about him is incontrovertibly great, as 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. They heard and considered matters totally new to them. Though the most educated... Think about kings. They're the most educated in a nation, the most experienced, and the most exposed to what's going on in the rest of the world or even in their realm. In the, in the course of history, most men have sat at home and knew nothing of what was going on except they needed to get up the next morning and take a hoe or take an ox and plow some ground. They did not know, but kings knew. But they heard things that they had not heard and they considered them. Neither counselors that they had, even as children, or ambassadors from other nations, had ever told such things as the preachers of the gospel came to these kings. No wonder Jesus is the king of kings with total superiority because his life and his knowledge so far exceeded theirs. No king ever had power over death to raise himself to life, and they heard about Jesus doing that. No king ever had power to ascend from earth to heaven, but Jesus did that. No king ever had ambassadors that changed the world, for even in the world's estimation, his ambassadors turned the world upside down. No king ever established a kingdom that is now 2,000 years old. Alexander the Great's only lasted a short while. The Roman Empire did not last forever. Hitler's Third Reich that he thought would last a thousand years is long gone, but not the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to Isaiah chapter 53. Do you love the words of God? I have to ask you, do you love the words of God? I'm doing for you what Ezra did for the Jews in Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm reading in the book of God distinctly, giving the sense and causing you to understand the reading. If you love Jesus Christ, I asked the question earlier, you should want to know every word here. If you love every word of God, you should not be bored by this style of presentation. 
This is not my favorite style of presentation. This is the best way to convey what every clause and every word of it means to you. What you heard last week is my favorite way of dealing with Isaiah 53. And what you could have heard last night from Isaiah 53 in verse 8, 34 minutes and 10 seconds, had me bawling in my office like a baby, unable to breathe, because of the glory of the fulfillment of the middle part of Isaiah 53.8. I know about the emotion of a passage. I know about the emotion of a Savior. But I want to leave Isaiah 53, for those of you who love it, with understanding of every one of its clauses. I want you to see how you should pull it apart and grasp every part of the chapter. Isaiah 53. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? After all that wonderful material that we just read that says it's, it was great and, and shocking to kings to consider such things, that Jesus would be exalted, extolled, and made very high because of it, nobody believed it. We break it down this way. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Chapter 53 begins with two questions. Who hath believed our report? Though Jesus sprinkled many nations, the Jews did not believe him. Though Gentile kings were astounded, the Jews did not believe. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. John chapter 1 and verse 11. Isaiah was ordained to preach a blinding gospel to the Jews. Do you remember chapter 6? After his vision of God, God said, who will go for us? Isaiah said, I will. Here am I, send me. And then God told him, go make the heart of this people fat, close their eyes and stop up their ears. And Isaiah said, for how long? Until I utterly destroy them and they're not left in the earth, but in it there shall be a tenth. Do you remember that from Isaiah chapter 6? This had been prophesied that no one would believe the glorious report that staggered even kings. Jesus and Paul repeated this certain Jewish unbelief over and over from Isaiah 6. It's one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. Even Jesus' brothers did not believe on him during his 33-year life. Not until he rose from the dead did they believe on him. Men believe all sorts of lies, especially today, but few believe the truest evidence ever given of the greatest transcendent event in human history, and that is God's Son coming to earth. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? This word should be precious to us. Our church is based on revelation, not on rationalization. Your arm is the most used and effective part of your anatomy. Right here, your arm. Your arm is the most used and effective part of your anatomy. The arm of the Lord has been prayed for and used already in Isaiah in recent chapters, which I hope you remember. The arm of the Lord here is salvation by God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, His servant. Men by nature cannot see it, hear it, believe it, or receive it. It's something we believe in this church. It's called total depravity. Without God's grace and without God revealing the truth about His Son to us, we can't see it, hear it, believe it, receive it, or care about it. We go our own way. 
like sheep. It must be revealed to men, but only a few are so blessed to have it revealed to them. God must open hearts and draw men to ever believe on Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 6, No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. If you know and love, if you know and love this greatest of men, the servant of God, thank God right now. Lord God, we thank thee that we see thy son. We have heard him. We believe him. We have received the gospel truth about him, and we love him by your grace. Help us to see, to hear, to believe, to receive, and to love him even more. Isaiah 53 and verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Let's look at the parts this way. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Isaiah 53 and verse 2. This verse describes Jesus growing up in the sight of God. A tender plant is one that is not strong. God's servant Jesus began life in a feeding trough in a stable in Bethlehem. Joseph had to run away with Jesus to Egypt due to Herod the Great and his threats against the life of God's servant. Jesus grew up in a despised little town called Nazareth in Galilee. But he was everything God asked him to be in his humiliation. He's not humiliated now, and for that I rejoice. And as a root out of a dry ground, Jesus was like a plant without proper water. He looked malnourished in all the respects that you would look for in a king. He had little power or vitality. A royal son of David should have had. He was the legal son of an obscure carpenter named Joseph in an obscure family, in an obscure town, in an obscure region of Israel. There was nothing about him visible, nothing visible to others of his future. You couldn't see his future unless you knew Isaiah 52 and 53. Then you knew his future. But he was everything God asked him to be in his humiliation. He hath no form nor comeliness. Jesus did not have an attractive appearance. Jesus was not attractive in face or body. You say, but what about the Song of Solomon? Well, when he was on earth, he didn't fit that very well. But he fits it well now if you want to apply the Song of Solomon to the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not like these words. I don't like them. In a certain respect, that the Bible can say about Jesus, he had no attractive form. He had no attractive comeliness. He wasn't attractive to look at. But God chose that for him to give us an example. He was not beautiful and ruddy like David, his handsome father. 
which the Bible tells us about David's looks. He was unlike Solomon, the handsome son of David and Bathsheba. When you have two good-looking parents, you're going to have a good-looking son. And so Solomon was a good-looking son, but not this son of David. Look what it says. He hath no form nor comeliness. There was nothing about him to attract attention or affection. And when we shall see him, Jesus was revealed to Israel by John the Baptist. John told Israel that the Lamb and Son of God was before them. And so they looked at this man from Nazareth of Galilee as John pointed him out. But unless the Lord had revealed it to you, you couldn't see it. When we shall see him, his hometown folks knew his father, mother, and siblings and despised him because of that. They had no respect for him and expected him to prove that he was something special by calling fire down from heaven or some great miracles in the city of Nazareth. His brothers and sisters, as has already been mentioned, were not impressed and did not believe until after his resurrection. One of the largest crowds to ever hear Jesus preach can be found in John chapter 6 where he fed the 5,000 men, not counting women and children, and they tried to make him a king and they sought him out, but then he turned his doctrine and they walked away from him. He wasn't enough for them. While they still had the free lunch in them of fish fillets, fish sandwiches, bread and fish, while they had that in them, oh, they loved him then. But when he just taught them truth that would benefit their lives, they all walked away. And Jesus turned to the twelve and asked them if they were going to go away as well. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing about Jesus naturally to attract men. Nothing. Naturally to attract men. So sometimes you better listen instead of look. We want our church to be based on words. Words of the living God given to us in writing in our Bibles. We don't want to be entertained. We don't want distractions. We don't want programs. We don't want personalities. We want the words of the living God. So like these right here telling us that Jesus is beautiful, exalted, extolled, and very high, but not when he came into this world. He was not handsome. He was not charismatic. He was not athletic. He was not sanguine. See, we like people that are athletic, sanguine, charismatic, and handsome. They have lots of friends, but Jesus wasn't like that. There was no earthly reason to believe him and follow him, which makes all the, we love it that way. Because then you follow him because of revelation, not because of advantage, not because of popularity. We love this aspect of the gospel. This was a good test for the Jews, and most of them flunked it because he didn't look like the king they were looking for. You may not like this. I don't like it in some respects. For the Bible to say about him that he has no beauty because my Savior is beautiful in every aspect and respect that I can find about him. But in his humiliation, what's beautiful about him is that he was willing to do this for our salvation. This was God's greatest servant, God's only begotten son, but he was humbled before God and God's plan in this world. Do not worry, my friends. He is gloriously beautiful today on a white horse and you would drop down dead and worship him if you could see him at this hour. 
but I hope you see him with the eyes of faith. I saw him last night, and it had a dramatic effect on me, and I thank God for those seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Let's go. Jesus, God's servant, was despised and rejected of men. He had no strength or beauty, so the Jews despised him. There was nothing about him that looked like a king. The Jews ignored him, mocked him, and reviled him. He is despised and rejected of men. Do not get discouraged or confused. In a prophecy like Isaiah, as the verb tenses change from present to past to future to perfect, because that's just the way the prophets wrote. He is. No, he didn't exist yet for another 700 years, but don't ever let that discourage you from reading. Poetry is not as precise as didactic instruction. Poetry is a song. It's, it's, it, show, it, it uses different words, lots of metaphors, and lots of different tenses, and so it is in the book of Isaiah. They made fun, that is the Jews, made fun of his hometown of Nazareth and his father Joseph. They called him a Samaritan. They called him a deceiver. They said he did his miracles by the power of the devil. They called him a drunkard and a glutton, a drunkard being a wine-bibber in the Bible. They turned him over to the Romans. This is how much they despised him and chose Barabbas instead. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief was God's servant. He grieved at the unbelief he had to deal with his whole life. Even his own siblings did not believe and mocked him. His hometown tried to kill him after a glorious, gracious reading described in detail in Luke chapter 4. He saw heartache at every turn as the sick and possessed came to him for deliverance. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in Gethsemane. We're talking about him being a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we love singing a song, Man of Sorrows. His best friends either betrayed him, deserted him, or denied him. Think about it. He was despised and re a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. His best friends either betrayed, deserted, or denied him. At his trial, at his trial, where were all the Jews that believed on him? At his trial, where were all the Jews that were healed by him? At his trial, where were all the Jews that tried to make him king in John 6? It was Passover. They were all there. But they ignored him. Do you grasp that the greatest man ever was ignored by the best nation on earth, prepared for him with prophets and John the Baptist? He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah, including himself, wrote in the first person, The Jews despised him, but his followers did no better. They didn't esteem him. The rest of the nation didn't esteem him. The nation as a whole, going by the numbers, counted him nothing. 
He was despised, and we esteemed him not. You would have done the same or worse, but for the grace of God. It's hard for us to believe that, but we must. We must humble ourselves before the word of God, that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes, which is true of us. Verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Surely he hath borne our... There's only two sections to this verse. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We've seen him as a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, but whose griefs and sorrows were they? Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, is the second part of the verse. The first part. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Know something for sure, because the verse starts with surely... Jesus hurt because of us. Jesus had great burdens in his life, but they were theirs, the Jews, his elect among the Jews, and ours. He was not burdened with his sins, his sickness, or his devils. He grieved for all those around him in trouble by their sins. He wept for those crying, though he always had hope, even with the death of Lazarus. He is a perfect high priest for you that go to God for help. He is able to commiserate with you in your sorrows and in your grief. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. This is Isaiah speaking about the Jews and with the Jews. Again, he uses the first person. The Jews considered Jesus a blasphemer under God's judgment. This is one of the places where you need to think in the book of Isaiah. What does this clause mean? Yet we did esteem him stricken. Now it has just said that they did not esteem him, but then it says they did esteem him. Well, they didn't count him being important. Why did, how did they count him being stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted? They mocked his trust in God and a lack of answer from heaven when he was on the cross. They considered his troubled life and his death as God's judgment of him. They accounted him under the judgment of God. The only way they would look at him and have an opinion was an opinion, this man is of the devil and God's judging him, he's a blasphemer. These words are not proper esteem of him dying as our savior, of him being stricken for us, smitten for us, and afflicted for us. They are words, they are derogatory words describing God striking him, smiting him, and afflicting him for his sins. These words are the false notion that they had of his death, that it was God's judgment. We know this fact. We know this interpretation by the wonderful disjunctive that starts the next verse. And here we go. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastised, for the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. This opening disjunctive but is used to contrast this verse to the previous one, where they esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted for his sins, so they thought. But it was for our transgressions. 
He was not under God's judgment for his sins, but for our sins. He was wounded by Jews and Romans for our transgressions. How was he wounded? He was scourged. He had hands on his face, fists on his face, thorns in his brow, nails in his hands and feet. Sin is the transgression of the law. So we're talking about sins, and he suffered for our sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was bruised by the Romans. It was not for his iniquities, but ours. God should have bruised you. He should have bruised me. Instead, he bruised his servant. He was bruised many ways by smiting him on his face, by scourging, by thorns, by nails. When did you last get bruised for not sinning? Paul asks you that. When was the last time you shed blood resisting sin in Hebrews chapter 12? The chastisement of our peace was upon him. God was at war with all men, but Jesus made peace for us, his elect. This is called atonement, propitiation, reconciliation, and other wonderful words in the Bible of Jesus making peace with God for us. Since we were his rebel enemies, we needed to be chastised. Because God needed to chastise his enemies to have any peace about them. But he chastised his servant and son instead was upon him. He was chastised. The exact word. Pilate said, I will chastise him and let him go. And what he meant was, I will scourge him and let him go. His scourging, part of his death, was how he made peace for us. All enmity has been removed. We are accepted in the beloved. And with his stripes, we are healed. That kind of chastisement, I will chastise him and let him go, meaning scourging, leaves stripes. And with his stripes, we are healed. We had a terrible disease and wound, needing healing. It was sin. The stripes a soldier put on his back healed our sin sickness. This prophecy of Isaiah is incredibly detailed about his crucifixion as we've looked at wounding and bruising and chastisement and stripes. Verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. This verse further explains why he was wounded and bruised for us. We were, are the sinners. We disregarded conscience and scripture. We, like dumb and helpless animals, set ourselves against God. There is not a single man with understanding that seeks after God. All we like sheep have gone astray. All mankind is perfectly united, even you with them, in turning from God, because it says all we, and Isaiah included himself. We have turned every one to his own way. My brethren, church, hate this willful rebellion to do things your way and not God's. We have turned every one to his own way. Hate this willful rebellion. There are no exceptions. You are as much a rebel as any other. All men have rejected creation, providence, conscience, and scripture. Jesus never did this a single time, but always chose God's way, even if it was painful, 
even if he preferred an alternative, like in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jehovah God planned and managed this great transaction. Here is imputation, charging our sins to Jesus' account. Look it, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was not punished for his sins. He did not die as an example. Jesus died as a substitute. He died as a savior. This is the glorious doctrine of salvation. Your sins deserved eternal wrath. Jesus took the bruising for you. He paid the penalty for your iniquity, death under God's wrath. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Let's see its parts. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. The Jews rejected him, resented him, slandered him during his whole ministry. His greatest preacher, the Baptist, was beheaded for the truth that he told. The Jews tried to stone him at times, throw him off a cliff at other times. They mocked him. They mocked his family, his origin, and his character. Then they rigged a false trial where they could demand his death. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. But his death could not be Jewish, Jewish because it had to be by the Romans, because a bone couldn't be broken and it needed to be pierced. Conspiracy theorists are welcome here. Judas and the Jews certainly made up a conspiracy motivated by the devil. Yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus did not respond. Jesus did not respond with the vile reviling hurled in his direction. Amazing. What a servant of the Most High God. There had been lambs slain from the Garden of Eden forward. Millions of them. Jesus was the perfect lamb. He opened not his mouth. Jesus did not try to defend himself. Pilate marveled, the Bible tells us, that Jesus did not respond to what he knew was envy. He knew the charges were false. Why doesn't Jesus defend himself? How can he remain so silent with all these accusations that are easy to see through? What would you have done on trial? What would I have done? We would have said much. But he came to die, and he showed himself the ultimate lamb. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. The intention of the Jews was to kill Jesus by Roman crucifixion, the slaughter. When lambs are to be butchered, they do not resist much at all. They meekly, weakly allow themselves to be led to the knife. Many lambs had died this way for 4,000 years. Now it was Jesus' turn, the Lamb of God. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. Instead of a slaughter, let's think of shearing sheep. Sheep, when they are sheared each spring, do not object. They could choose panicked bleeding, but they meekly submit. They could fight and buck and kick, but they give in quietly. This is the general rule. And we were able to visit a sheep farm a few years ago, and you were able to witness it. This despite a man holding them still and taking all their hair. That's pretty good. 
when a lamb or a sheep will submit to a man holding them still and taking off all their wool. Try this on a cat sometime and see if it resists in one way or another. But Jesus fulfilled the role of sheep dying since Eden's coats. So he openeth not his mouth. Like the description of a lamb to shearing, Jesus did not respond. He could have told every details of their lives to the ridicule of all. He could have told what he would do to them on judgment day. He could have told the gory details of Jerusalem's soon desolation. But he humbly and meekly went to his death as the servant of God and as God had planned. He humbly and meekly fulfilled the type of the Passover lamb. Verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Here is the unjust and wrong betrayal by rulers to the execution of Jesus Christ on a Roman cross. Prison, prison is not to keep criminals from the public. Prison is to protect criminals from the public, from lynch mobs. Prisons protect men from revenge. Think about the cities of refuge. That's where you could go and be protected. That was the closest thing they had to a prison in those days. Judgment. Jesus was taken from prison where he should have been protected and kept to appear before only one place, the judgment hall of Pilate, where righteous, just, equitable, fair judgment would have been passed upon him. But he was taken out of there and exposed to the angry mob that would not let Pilate let him go. He was taken from judgment. Think of Pilate's judgment hall as where justice should protect him. Jesus got neither. He was lynched by a mob. Pilate betrayed him. You know how I'm using that word. I'm using it as a metaphor for his crucifixion. This great servant of the Almighty God was cruelly mistreated. The Jews, when falsely accusing him, referred to the law of Moses, but they didn't care about the law of Moses. And who shall declare his generation? Some of my favorite words from Isaiah 53 and verse 8, and it's what the 34 minutes and 10 seconds suggested to you last night as extra material, and I hope it might bless your heart if you'll find 34 minutes and 10 seconds for your love of Jesus Christ from Isaiah 53. Jesus died in the prime of life. Jesus died without wife or children. He had no offspring, descendants, or progeny. He had no legacy. He had no family tree. Kings have to have sons. Think about Henry VIII. Jesus had none. His kingdom was going to come to an end. He had no sons or princes to perpetuate his kingdom on earth. Satan and evil Jews thought they ended his kingdom message. Satan and Jews thought they ended Jesus as the king of the Jews. Oh no, my brethren. No, they did not end Jesus and his kingdom message. You know, his whole ministry he had preached, the kingdom of heaven is like unto, the kingdom of heaven is like unto, and it remains in the earth today, 2,000 years later. But we are his generation. We are his children. We are his seed. We are kings and priests with him. 
Yes. I'm just suggesting it for the third time. 34 minutes and 10 seconds, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm busy too. There was time for it, and it was worth my time. I had my respiratory abilities checked by sobbing about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed to tell you. I don't sob enough. If I loved the Lord Jesus more, I'd sob more often. Lord, teach me how to sob at his glorious resurrection, ascension, coronation, and coming again. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Jesus died in the prime of life at 33. He did not die due to his folly, accident, or disease. He was cut off early by wicked Jewish enemies. He never had the future that men dream of. Why did God allow this to his servant? For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Why did God allow such a travesty of judgment to be taken from prison and out of Pilate's judgment hall and not dealt with fairly? Why did God allow his servant to have no generation? Why was he stricken even to death by enemies? For the transgression of the Jewish elect, he was killed. For your transgressions, he was so cruelly and rudely treated. Verse 9, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit, neither was any deceit in his mouth. And he made his grave with the wicked. God's servant was put to death like a common criminal with the wicked. Grave here is a metonym for death, as in the next phrase, which you'll see. Jesus was crucified to death between two common thieves. He was not buried with them nor near them. Grasp the metonym. The prophecy's point is the ignominious end of God's servant. He made his grave with the wicked. He died among common criminals. He died at the lowest end of the human scale, not at the highest end where he belonged, where he is at this hour. And with the rich in his death, God's servant was buried with the rich in his death. Jesus' death here does not separate cross and tomb. They're combined together in the verse. A technical aspect of this particular verse Jesus was buried in Joseph's tomb, not with Joseph. If he died like a criminal, then such a tomb was borrowed. There was no room for him in the inn or in the cemetery of his own. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of Jesus, but one did, and it was Joseph of Arimathea. Because he had done no violence is why he died with common criminals and was buried. How does this make sense? Jesus was killed because he was innocent? Yes, just like Cain killed Abel because he was righteous. Our Lord's righteousness condemned the Jews every day. Pilate knew the Jews brought Jesus for trial out of envy. If you doubt this rule, try living a godly life. Persecution will come. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. For all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Is what that verse tells us. There was no deceit in his mouth. He wasn't guilty of any violence. He was not guilty of any dishonesty, lying, or slander. Their accusers could not get their stories to agree, but he was taken from prison and from judgment and killed on a tree. This was the greatest travesty of judgment of justice in the history of the world. Do not study or worry about any other travesty of judgment. This is the real conspiracy. 
Verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It breaks down into seven parts this way. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why the injustice, cruelty, ignominy, and suffering of God's servant? Because it pleased Jehovah God to punish his son for you. This is Isaiah 53. Yet, that opens this verse, draws the contrast to the evil done that we've been looking at. Why did God let this happen? Because it pleased the Lord, it pleased Jehovah God, to bruise his son this way. This is the most transcendent transaction in all human history. If God delivered up Jesus for bruising, he will freely give us all things, as Romans 8.32 teaches. He hath put him to grief. No, this is impossible. Why would the infinitely intelligent God do so? Put his servant to grief, who perfectly obeyed him. Why would the great Jehovah cause his servant grief? So it was really and truly God that tortured his son? He hath put him to grief. Yes, it is true. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Here is the explanation for all the cruelty thus far. God would offer his servant to die for our sins. Note the second person. When thou, Isaiah, and we as the readers are now speaking to God about making his soul an offering for sin, and it helps us understand the pronouns in the rest of this verse. The word of God never makes a mistake. Every detail of our Lord's death was by God's determinate counsel. Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. The wages of sin is death. Someone had to die. God sent his servant. God sent his son. His servant and son laid down his life willingly. He shall see his seed. Jesus would see his children or seed. Just as he says in Psalm 22 and verse 30, Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. For I know my sheep, and they know me, and they know my voice. Jesus died for those God gave him, John 6. We were chosen in him before time, Ephesians 1. Our names are written in his book. It's called the book of life of the Lamb. He saw every single one of his elect. He did not die as a martyr or as an example, although he can be used as an example. He died as a substitute for his elect. He shall prolong his days. Jesus, our Savior, did not end at the cross like the Jews believed. Jesus' kingdom, his gospel, his authority and religion did not die. Jesus had power to lay his life down. Jesus had power to take it up again. Jesus declared to John in Revelation chapter 1 that I am alive forevermore. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What was God's pleasure? The verse tells us to bruise Jesus for our sins. Was he successful? The great assignment was fulfilled perfectly. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. The great work of salvation was done by Jesus. It is finished. He cried from the cross. He secured and guaranteed eternal life for all of God's elect. God rewarded him greatly for it, as we shall see. Verse 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. 
He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He shall see of the travail of his soul. Almighty God Jehovah saw Jesus suffering. It was his purpose and pleasure for Jesus to die. The wages of sin is death. Someone had to die. Jesus died as a substitute for us to appease God. God was angry with us for our sins. God saw everything in Christ's life, especially this, his death for us, and shall be satisfied. This is the great doctrine of satisfaction known to theologians, should be known by all, because it's not an invention of a systematic theology. It is an inspiration of Isaiah 53. And shall be satisfied. God's anger, God's justice were fully satisfied. He no longer had any claims against his people. Thus, we are accepted in the beloved, as Ephesians 1, 6 tells us. This is the truest information. This is the best news. This, these are the gladdest tidings ever given to men. Kings shut their mouths when they heard things like this. But you're bored. You're tired. You're dozing. You can't wait for me to be over. I speak to you at home. Stay with me for a couple more minutes. I know what time it is. I'm sweating more than you are. But I'm not sweating as it were great drops of blood. Only Jesus Christ has done that for you. Thus, he has reconciled us to himself. Thus, we are declared just in his sight. Thus, we are at one with God again. By his knowledge. This is not our knowledge of God. This is not God's knowledge of Jesus. This is Jesus' knowledge, which was perfect, of God and his will. Jesus knew the will of God and kept it perfectly. Jesus trusted in God throughout and at the end, at the very end, even though he had said God had forsaken him, he commended his spirit into God's hands. That is great faith and knowledge of God's faithfulness. This is legal justification by his knowledge right here. It is the second Adam acting. Shall my righteous servant justify many? This is legal justification by Jesus' death on the cross. It is the second Adam acting on our behalf, dying for us after obeying for us because he knew the will of God perfectly and always did it. God's servant was the second Adam, the seed of the woman. God's servant Jesus was righteous. Notice he's called my righteous servant. He did not die for his sins, but for ours. He was righteous. He is called Jesus Christ the righteous in our Bibles in the New Testament. He paid the penalty for all God's elect, paid the penalty in full, they are declared just and righteous at the bar of God's justice. They have no sins, and instead they have Christ's perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For he shall bear their iniquities. This is how and when justification occurred. How did it occur? Jesus died for the elect. When did it occur? At the cross of Calvary. When we believe and the Bible says that we're justified, that's just us showing the evidence of the justification that took place at the cross of Calvary. This legal transaction did not have you present. You weren't there to do anything. This legal transaction was between God and his servant. Justification is by imputation, which means to account someone 
by an assigned value, imputation. Our sins were imputed to Christ, charged to him. His righteousness was imputed to us, assigned to us. He bore our iniquities, and we bear his righteousness at this hour. I can stand before Almighty God, who is thrice holy in the testimony of those who've ever seen him, and know that I stand perfectly righteousness, perfectly righteous in the righteousness of his Son, because he bore my iniquities. The punishment of our sins was exacted from Jesus. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. The last verse, Isaiah 53 and verse 12. Therefore, 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 because my servant did all that has been described in the 13 verses from Isaiah 52, 14 to Isaiah 53, 11, therefore, Will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong? Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. It looks like that. Seven parts. Therefore, this word, therefore, along with behold, of 52.13, are two favorite verses, and two favorite words. Therefore draws a conclusion a glorious conclusion. What would God do for his obedient servant? And this should excite the lovers of Jesus Christ and the sons of God as to what God did for Jesus for saving us. After all, this servant died for God's enemies. After all, this servant suffered many injustices. After all, this servant was perfectly righteous himself. If you like the climax or conclusion to a great historical event, Love this word in verse. Will I, devoid, will I divide him a portion with the great? Will I divide him a portion with the great? Kings rewarded victorious princes with a large portion of spoils after battle. Kings would look at the spoil and give a large portion to the prince or the general that led the battle to make him rich for what he had done so the king didn't have to fight. The king could stand in a nearby hilltop and watch. Enjoy the metaphor in its glorious word picture of honor given to the Lord Jesus Christ. God would divide him a portion with the great. But know also there is literal truth to be seen here. This is not just a metaphor. There's literal truth. Jesus got a big portion. Brethren, God did give great spoil to his servant and his son Jesus. He promoted him with and over all principalities and powers in the universe. He gave him a throne at his right hand. He gave him rule over the universe. He gave him the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lowly Jesus was promoted to the highest level, the highest throne in the universe. I will divide him a portion with the great. If God, if Jehovah God, worried and cared about Nebuchadnezzar's army that they didn't get paid in the spoil of Tyre, so he gave them Egypt, do you think he might look out for his son and want to give him some spoil? Oh, yes, my brethren. Do you love the God of glory? Do you love this drama? This is true. It's not the fake news. It's not the fearful news that you're going to find if you look anywhere else. It's the word of the living God. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Jesus wouldn't keep it all to himself, 
This is incredible. God gave Jesus the inheritance of the universe. God gave Jesus the Holy Ghost as personal comforter. But Jesus, in turn, shared it with all those he had died for. Though they did nothing, he made them his joint heirs. All things are ours. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the last three verses. All things are ours. We own the universe. Psalm 68 compared to Ephesians 4, 8 teaches both. Both clauses. That God gave Jesus great spoil, and then Jesus divided the spoil with the strong. Because in 68, 18, God gave the gifts of the ministry to Jesus. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Jesus gave the gifts of the ministry to men. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, and so forth. The day of Pentecost is a great display of this division of spoil with the strong. If you overcome this world by living for Jesus Christ, you get to sit in his throne with him. If you overcome this world by living for Christ, you get to ride a white horse with him. Praise the Lord. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death. This summary conclusion for 15 verses is glorious. This is what caused it all. He poured out his soul unto death. God's servant died as he did. Because he did, God rewarded him. He poured out his soul into death. He let himself get killed. You are unable to do that. You have a need to survive, and you will fight for survival. Let the kids try to hold you down in a bathtub underwater after this message is over. There's my light moment for this sermon. And you'll find out that you have a very strong desire to live. Jesus poured out his soul into death. Amazing. He allowed the necessary pain and bloodletting to kill him. Knowing in advance that it was coming, he willingly left the land of the living for the darkness of death. Now he did have faith of what was beyond that dark curtain. He did not resist. He did not stop the abusive carnage of his own body that let his life's blood run free. For this unbelievable obedience, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Count them. Thief number one, thief number two, God's servant. Jesus was crucified between two common criminals of the Jews. By all the observers except a few, he was not different from them. God saw this humiliation and rewarded Jesus for enduring it. And he bare the sin of many, the spotless servant of God took our sins. God turned his back on his son because of our sins. He suffered the full penalty of God's law for them so that we do not have to suffer that full penalty. He suffered the additional curse of hanging on a tree by Roman crucifixion. Though righteous, he became sin for the unrighteous, for you and me, and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus prayed his father to forgive the murderers at the cross. Is that any evidence of character? The glorious Son of God praying for the Father to forgive those murderers at the cross for they didn't know what they were doing. If the princes of this world had known that Jesus was the Lord of glory, they wouldn't have touched him, 1 Corinthians 2 teaches us. Jesus showed further his glorious character even facing death. Stephen would later follow this glorious example in Acts chapter 7. 
What will you do with this servant? What will you do with Jesus, the Son of God, if you do not love him supremely? Anathema, Maranatha to you. Be cursed at his coming. You cannot have Jesus and mind earthly things, or you are a belly worshiper. If you do love him supremely, then get baptized soon in his name to swear your loyalty to him in the burial waters of immersion of a Baptist baptism. If you are baptized in his name, then join a church to have communion and remember his death till he comes for us. If you are baptized and communing, then seek the full dimensions of his love as Ephesians chapter 3 describes. This is a spiritual pursuit, not one to add a quarter of an inch to your bicep, but to add dimensions, height, depth, length, and breadth of the love of Christ for you that is described here in Isaiah 53, but which the Holy Spirit can make much more, much more real to you and with greater detail. A threefold conspiracy will seek to derail your love and service. That threefold conspiracy is the world, the devil, and your flesh. There are no inputs for him in your life unless you seek them out. No inputs about the Lord Jesus Christ are going to come looking you out. You have got to go find them. He promised, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Will you run to God's servant, Jesus of Nazareth, to follow him today? That is Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53 and verse 12. Please stand with me, even in your homes. Almighty God, our Father, and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, please, gracious Lord, increase our love of him. Grant us thy spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know the depths of Jesus Christ's love for us. Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us. Our flesh is weak. The world is deceitful. The devil is a roaring lion. None of those three want us to love your son. Help us to do so by divine grace and power. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our slighting of thy servant. Forgive us for not esteeming thy son as we should have. Help us to put legs to our faith, hands to our love, that our faith and our love in Jesus Christ might have actions and works bringing great glory to thy name that the world may see by looking at us. Be with us now as we take a little break and then come back again to thy precious word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.